Hello and welcome to the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. And I'm the host of ABC's Start Here Podcast, Brad Milkey, filling in for Jonathan Carl. Thanks for having me, Rick. Brad, welcome to the podcast fold. Start Here is a terrific download. Make sure you, you go and do it. Uh, John Carl, we should note, I think is still sleeping off the... Uh, <sighs> Uh, the NLCS and the the victory from the Washington Nationals. I, I heard there were streakers last night, <laughs> but I, I didn't get. I didn't have any confirmation. No confirmation if John was part of that or not. But our congratulations to the Washington Nationals uh, making their first ever World Series appearance. Very exciting news. Also exciting news, a bit away from Washington, the debate last night. Uh, we had a lot of news to get to today, and we're going to talk about the latest in the impeachment inquiry and also some news the president is making uh, on his serious strategy, uh, again, recommitting himself to the removal of troops. We're going to talk to a key congressman involved in impeachment who actually knows a lot about the presidential debates by virtue of having been a candidate at one point, Brad. But I, I do want to start with the debate because it, it felt to me like there's a new front runner in town. Yeah. Uh, we just had a, a much different focus than we have when we're used to everyone piling on Joe Biden. Yes, you had 12 people on stage. That's the most we've ever seen uh, on a Democratic stage together. In the middle was Joe Biden, but right next to him, Elizabeth Warren. And we really have seen the poll numbers shift towards her it, it, to be charitable. They're splitting sort of that top spot. But really, you've got a lot of Democratic strategists saying she is the front runner at this point. And clearly, the way that other candidates on stage were strategizing, it clearly seems like they are they consider her the front runner as well. Yeah, it, it felt like they recognized that the race has changed quite a bit. And there was a lot on the line for a number of candidates. Um, of course, Joe Biden's been in the news quite a bit. But it was Elizabeth Warren that took the brunt of it. We put together uh, a little montage of some of the greatest hits that were aimed at Senator Warren. Senator Warren, I just want to say that I was surprised to hear that you did not agree with me when I called on Twitter to suspend Donald Trump's uh, account. And I'm sorry, Elizabeth, but you have not said that. And I think we owe it to the American people to tell them where we're going to send the invoice. Senator Warren is is more focused on being punitive or, or pitting some part of the country against the other. I want to give a reality check here to Elizabeth, because no one on this stage wants to protect billionaires, not even the billionaire wants to protect billionaires. I agreed with the great job she did, and I went on the floor and got you votes. I got votes for that bill. I convinced people to vote for it. So those are the voices of four of the others on stage. There were others who piled on as well, and she got incoming for a lot of different directions on her health care plan, uh, on the lack of specificity around taxes, uh, on whether she's even able to get things done. You heard right there from the vice president, well, former and, vice president. Well, and the name that we actually heard her twice in that montage uh, was Amy Klobuchar, who really piled on to that Medicare for all debate because right before one of her, her quotes that we heard there, she also said, hey, at least Bernie is willing to admit that middle class taxes are going to be raised. And that's when she says, we don't even know where to send the invoice because of you. And we also saw... Uh, Pete Buttigieg come after Warren during that Medicare for All debate time and time again, saying... Well, we heard it tonight, a yes or no question that didn't get a yes or no answer. Look, this is why people here in the Midwest are so frustrated with Washington in general and Capitol Hill in particular. And and, uh, Joe Biden, you know, that's music to his ears. And at one point later on in the debate, he says, we cannot be vague when we're dealing with this. And it just added up to... You got candidates at, at the front of the pack who a lot of people know, but among Democrats, Elizabeth Warren's Favorable, unfavorable ratings are fantastic. They're incredible. I think her unfavorable rating among Democrats in a recent poll was like 5%. So you can see the other candidates trying to chip away at that, give give Democratic voters a reason to go, eh, I, oh, maybe she is a little elusive here. Yeah, and that actually points out a big risk for the Democrats that are attacking because we're still – 
No one's voting for another couple months, Brad, as you know very well. We're uh, we're deep into the process, and uh, there's, a, there's an elimination process with regard to some of these debates. Some of the candidates you heard, just heard for, like Beto O'Rourke, Amy Klobuchar, they may not qualify for the next debate next month. Uh, so they feel some urgency. But attacking someone who is viewed that positively carries some downside. That carries some risk. And uh, taking Elizabeth Warren down a peg doesn't mean you necessarily get the votes that she carries with her. So who do you think won that? Well, I, there's like the question after every debate, Rick, like who won? And that can mean different things, right? There's the micro who won the night who just increased their stock price the most and who is like one step closer to the Democratic nomination. I mean, who, who won each of those sort of battles? Well, it's I, I always end up with these split scorecards. So I try to I try not to evade your questions, Brad, because I try to be specific. <laughs> yes or no. And yes, the answer or no. Is yes or no. Uh, look, Joe Biden had a lot on the line. The fact that no one really attacked him over his uh uh, over his son's business dealings, I think is a win for him to be able to walk away from that basically unscathed without anyone uh, looking at him. He is still a front runner as well. I was really impressed by the the fight that Mayor Pete put up. Um, the, I've seen okay. I've seen Mayor Pete. You know, I've known the guy before he since before he ran for president. I feel like he has matured as a as a politician and as a debater quite a bit and evolved his tactics, evolved his strategies. I think he's I, I think he's gotten coaching over even how to conduct himself on stage. He just looked like a more substantial person. And you really saw him begin to mix it up with a whole series of candidates, including, I think, Beto O'Rourke it was one of the key moments of the night. There was also a, a really interesting conversation on foreign policy between Pete Buttigieg and the other person with military experience on stage in Tulsi Gabbard. But this moment between Buttigieg and Beto O'Rourke, I thought was fascinating, especially when Buttigieg says, you know, Beto O'Rourke says, we got to have courage here. And what Buttigieg says, do you have that clip, Trevor? You know, don't tell me about courage. The problem is in the polls. The problem is the policy. And I don't need lessons from you on courage, political or personal. And it did seem to me like there was a strategy. He is trying to claim the middle or reclaim the middle from a party that seems to be moving in the left. The the problem that he and Amy Klobuchar and maybe to a lesser extent Betsy O'Rourke have in, in trying to claim it is that Joe Biden owns it right now. Yep. And that's that's where his vote share is. So it struck me, Brad, that uh, there are several candidates who are either explicitly or implicitly expecting Biden to fade, expecting that those votes that are now parked in Joe Biden's column are up for grabs. You've got a lot of people who say that they're going to vote for Joe Biden. You've had his numbers not change a ton during the debate as far as people going away from him. But also, you got to remember, not a lot of Americans have seen the debates. Like, as much as we talk about them, a lot of people think of Joe Biden as the guy they've always known. And he still sounds in a lot of these clips like the guy you've always known. It's when you watch him in his entirety that I think a lot of debate watchers have gone like, has he has he lost a step or two? But I, I think Biden played a lot of moments well for people who just want to see sort of a restoration of norms, right? This is a guy who is saying what what Trump is doing in Syria is a disgrace. He's the guy who says, I've only... I'm the only one here who's accomplished anything big. And, Rick, no one really argued with him on that. I mean, you had people sort of displaying their resumes, but he he was rattling off things he had done as vice president as a, and as a, you know, a titan of the Senate, saying, I, I'm the guy who has been here that you can trust, and I'm the one who actually knows how to get stuff done. And for Americans that are thinking, hey, I just want a return to normalcy – they look over at Elizabeth Warren, perhaps, who's really a, a breaker of norms. She would say different norms than, than President Trump. She wants to restore some of the norms that he's broken, but then break some herself. you got to imagine that Biden and some of these other candidates on stage are thinking, I just want to be the person who, who takes us back to square one a few years ago. And, and Biden, I think, had a lot of lines that, that would back him up there. Yeah, and, and you also heard people like Mayor Pete trying to say, you know, the good old days weren't all, all, always good mm. to um, – 
to quote Billy Joel, as I'm apt to do sometimes. And I, I feel like the, the there's a risk in Biden uh, in Biden offering that, that people um, are looking backwards in a way that isn't exactly aligning with reality, particularly with a rising progressive movement. And speaking of that progressive movement, we got to talk Bernie Sanders. Yes. Uh, two weeks ago, he had a heart attack. Uh, he was essentially been off the campaign trail since then. He's done a series of interviews, including with our friend uh, John Carl over the weekend, where they patted the ball around a little bit, getting ready for the World Series, perhaps, in, in his backyard in Vermont, looking vigorous. He looked strong uh, 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 at that debate on Tuesday night. And take a listen to what he said about his health. We are going to be mounting a vigorous campaign all over this country. That is how I think I can reassure the American people. And if he wants to display vigor, he's got an opportunity this weekend. He is going to be campaigning in New York City, his original hometown, with another New Yorker, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman from New York, the big upset winner of, uh, of the 2018 cycle, and perhaps the most coveted endorsement of anyone that is currently a Democrat in Congress. Uh, she, she controls a movement. I mean, th- and that's my question for you, Rick, is because we saw AOC endorse him, and this was rolled out like expertly, right? Amazingly. Near, near the last half hour of the debate, we learned that AOC has endorsed Bernie Sanders. She's going to appear with him. Well, then we learned throughout the night that you've also got Ilhan Omar. You've also got Rashida Tlaib. You've got these, these squad goals. So my question is, though, why would the squad endorse Bernie Sanders right now, Rick? Because can you explain this to me? Because I understand why he would ask for their endorsement and why he would want it this week. But do they really think he's going to be president? And and if not, why why fight that fight right now alongside of him? So two schools of thought. And first, I can say I, I love it when news breaks like that because you can see the buzz around the room. We're all watching the Nationals game on one screen as well as the debate on another screen. And all of a sudden, ooh, AOC endorsed, endorsed, endorsed. Everyone's talking to each other about it. So it's the it's a lot of conventional wisdom makers, a lot of the campaign operatives and aides, a lot of interest group people. We were all buzzing about it in the aftermath. And I, there's two, two main schools of thought. One is it's it's a question of loyalty and it's a question of trust that – Bernie Sanders is someone that has been fighting for the progressive movement for 40 years. He has been virtually unchanged. The movement has followed him more than he has followed the movement, and that there is an inherent trust in what he represents and what he offers that people like AOC, who, by the way, volunteered for her for his campaign uh, in 2016, back when no one really cared who she was, uh, they, they, they see him as the right messenger, and they want to pr- prove that loyalty. The other is, and this is more of a bank shot argument, that progressives are going to benefit by having two strong progressives in the race for a long time. One in that it means twice as many people to donate to and to generate excitement and fundraising base around. And two, to make sure that this primary that's been lurching leftward keeps going that way, to make sure that Elizabeth Warren, for instance, doesn't change her mind on Medicare for all, because as long as Bernie Sanders is in there, she really can't. Could I be the cynical one, though, Rick? Could I be the one to be like, you know, they they look at somebody like Joe Biden. They're like, well, we're not going to side with Joe Biden. They look at Elizabeth Warren and they go, she's not exactly like us. And she actually has a real shot at being president. And I wonder if they look at Bernie Sanders and they think, look, this might end up like 2016 or maybe even going even less far than, than 2016. If our rep right now is we're kind of burning it down on the left and and we are really good voices of sort of opposition of challenge in the left, that by supporting Bernie, that's the way that we really retain that mantle. We're the the bad boys, the bad girls, the the bad squad going past 2020. And we claim that mantle going into like the years ahead, regardless of who's in the Oval. I think that's a that's a that's an interesting argument, a good argument, a strong one. And and it might be exactly the way that that folks are thinking. I think, though, I think uh, I think Alessandria Ocasio-Cortez is a much savvier political operator Mm -hmm. than people give give her credit for. And uh, she's an object of, of scorn and ridicule on the right and an object of fascination on the left. 
left, but she has continued to make moves that surprise me as an observer, confound me sometimes. Her involvement in the Democratic primary in Massachusetts, where she's uh, siding again with the old guy, Ed Markey, uh, over a Kennedy uh, in, in, in a race where uh, Joe Kennedy is trying to claim a mantle of generational change. She's again proving loyalty or saying, look, someone who is as, as good on the issues that we care about, including the Green New Deal, as Ed Markey, the senator in Massachusetts, deserves to be reelected and shouldn't be defeated just because someone is a couple of decades younger. I think she's making some really interesting moves. And I guarantee that this move around Bernie Sanders was not by accident. The timing of it can't be by accident yeah. either. This is a time where Bernie needs to get a boost. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, a lot of progressives I've talked to in the last couple of weeks, they're, they're, they're legitimately concerned perhaps about Bernie Sanders' health, but the health of his candidacy was on their mind before that. They recognized that Elizabeth Warren was beginning to overtake him and that it seemed like the conventional wisdom was moving in that direction, and they need to stop that. And I'll say, as much flack as Elizabeth Warren was getting up there on stage, except for perhaps some elusiveness when it came to Medicare for All in a couple of positions, I, I think in general – she was perceived as, as handling that front runner status pretty darn well. So I, I think going forward, then it, it, you got you don't see many people going. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is on the way out. Uh, it, you've got a few more people saying maybe Joe Biden could be. Yeah, that's a that's a terrific point. I think she she did uh, have good answers for for most of those things and and effectively played defense, which is also an offense at times, including when she said these all these other candidates out there pre- protecting the billionaires. Well, and uh, she got more speaking time than anyone because they were all coming after her. Then that's she right. gets to talk the most, and, and Americans just start looking at her as oh, I guess she's the presumptive nominee if she's talking that much. It just kind of subliminally reinforces that. That's a that's a great point. Uh, one other note we should we should mention on Joe Biden: a big ABC News exclusive uh, that dropped on the day of the debate earlier in the week. Our colleague Amy. Robach uh, sat down with Hunter Biden. We remember President Trump saying, where's Hunter? Where's Hunter? Well, he presented himself. He presented himself on, on ABC. And and he was asked a question about whether he considered a mistake to take the job with the Ukrainian energy company that uh, he concedes he really wasn't all that qualified for. Did I do anything improper? No, in, not in any way, not in any way whatsoever. I joined a board. I served honorably. And you know what? Like you said, I'm a human. And you know what? Did I make a mistake? Well, maybe in the, in, in the grand scheme of things, yeah. It, but did I make a mistake based upon some un, uh, ethical lapse? Absolutely not. It's a fascinating interview, and you should watch the whole thing if you haven't already. Uh, but um, Hunter Biden uh, deciding to speak out and defend himself, defend his father. Brad, what's what's your sense of how it plays? He has been kind of a quiet voice in this drama, so much so that, uh, that the Trump campaign started selling T-shirts with that slogan, no. Where's Hunter? So the key thing to remember in all this is is what actually happened when it came to Ukraine. Hunter Biden joined the board of this company called Burisma. They're in Ukraine. They're an oil company. Hunter Biden had never worked at an oil company before, but he did get a board seat on this board. He says he serves on a lot of boards. He could lend some expertise. Uh, well, that happened to be as his father was also the vice president and looking at anti-corruption in Ukraine and making policy there. And so the question was always, was there in, in inappropriate leverage or communications or were they making moves sort of in conjunction with each other? That was always this sort of obvious question. But everyone who has examined this seems to come back and say, well, we don't see any evidence of actual wrongdoing. And that is the line that you're going to keep hearing from Hunter and Joe Biden time and time and time again. Did it look great? Maybe not. And that's what sort of the revelation here was that Hunter Biden said it might not have looked great looking back. This was a mistake. But then they will also say and Joe Biden hammer this multiple times that my son did nothing wrong. My son made a judgment. I'm proud of the judgment he made. I'm proud of what he had to say. And let's focus on this. The fact of the matter is that this is about Trump's 
corruption. That's what we should be focusing on. So I think that is sort of the line that I think certainly will resonate with Democrats. The question is, if Joe Biden does become the nominee, will that resonate with the rest of Americans? And yet, and, that's the, and I think that's exactly the question. And yet you had him say that, yeah, maybe you looked a little swampy. And, and maybe there's really few things that I got in my life that weren't because my last name was Biden. And he used and that I, word, right? Swampy. Swamp. And I, ta- I talked to some folks in the Biden campaign on this, and, and their feeling is that this is no great surprise that um, and, and, and to your point, it pales in comparison to things that the Trump children are still doing or actively doing while their while their father is actually the president right now. Uh, things that uh, in, in their minds are outright corrupt or illegal and in the minds of people in Congress might be impeachable. Uh, so they, they feel like if voters make a fair comparison, that it, 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 it's, it's a pretty obvious point. I, I, in a normal world, Brad, I couldn't help but think that an issue like this would be fodder for a Democratic primary. Uh, that other candidates on stage would say, I wouldn't let my vice president, mm-hmm. son or daughter, work in a capacity like that. And it was it was it was not appropriate. And it's a problem. Especially Don't say look, it's illegal. Just spe- say it's wrong. Especially look at all the Democrats that are with him. Elizabeth Warren doesn't have that long of a track record in government. So she hasn't had the opportunity to have like kids yeah. serve on foreign boards. You got young people like Pete Buttigieg, Beto O'Rourke. Like they would all be able to legitimately say, I've never done anything like this. I can't even imagine doing anything like this. And, and yet they don't and what that's just it's a bad look rick it's because of trump it's it's because trump is is raising it in the way he is none of them want to go where president trump is obviously leading them Mm. and you you heard it last night cory booker uh interjected later in the debate to defend joe biden on this point i'm having deja vu all over again first of all because i saw this play in 2016's election we are literally using Donald Trump's lies. And the second issue we cover on this stage is elevating a lie and attacking a statesman That was so offensive. He should not have to defend ourselves. And the only person sitting at home that was enjoying that was Donald Trump, seeing that we're distracting from his malfeasance and selling out of his office. And they view it as more of a political winner to stand up against Trump and defend Vice President Biden rather than to to try to jump into this fray. I wonder if it makes its way back in some uh, maybe under the radar screen way during the Democratic primary, that if people are if Democrats are looking for who is the person that can, you know, to, to, to steal a phrase, uh, drain the swamp, who can go up against Trump and be the, the cleanest representation of the change that we need, then maybe you need someone who doesn't have an entanglement like this. That's just a guess. Yeah. I haven't heard it from any campaigns, but it just feels to me like the kind of thing that could come back. I was like, it, there's a difference between saying Hunter Joe Biden did nothing wrong and saying Joe Biden is the best guy to take on the president. He's the sterling track record and he represents a, a, a time of really clean politics where people were not doing anything like that, that. That's not necessarily what Americans take away from all this, even if Hunter Biden, he never had any conversations about Ukraine policy, any weird conversations about China when uh, Hunter had business dealings there. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to talk to Congressman Eric Swalwell, a member of some key committees involved with the impeachment of President Trump. We're going to talk to him about the latest on impeachment, about what he thought about the debate last night, and also about the president's latest moves on Syria. Stick around. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We're pleased to be joined now by Congressman Eric Swalwell of California, a member of the House Judiciary and the House Intelligence Committee. And Congressman, want to talk about the latest on impeachment in a moment. But first, The president today uh, doubling down on his strategy of removing U.S. troops from Syria. Quote, it's not our problem, he says, talking about uh, the the battle between Turkey and the Kurds in Syria, continued to to say that there's nothing to do with us and there's a lot of sand that they could play with. What's your reaction to this and and what concerns do you have from where you sit in Congress about 
the uh, the ramifications of the president's decision. It's really disgusting to hear the president of the United States, you know, talk that way. Uh, one uh, with reckless, you know, abandon for our own national security, not recognizing the link between ISIS and threats here in the homeland. But two, the way he characterized the Kurds, he said they're no angels. And the truth is, uh, when ISIS was a threat, when they were a threat. We didn't need angels. We needed warriors. We needed loyal warriors. And the Kurds were loyal, and they were warriors. And they helped us defeat ISIS. And the very least we could do uh, for them is make sure that they're not slaughtered by the Turks, who are a NATO uh, member. And is there any anything moving in Congress that, that, that could push back at this? There's been talk about bipartisan resolutions. Do you feel like there's a, a growing force? A lot of Republicans, of course, are very upset by these, this, these comments and this action as well. Certainly, I believe there will be bipartisan force uh, in Congress uh, to sanction uh, Turkey uh, and also, uh, you know, perhaps uh, other legislatures across the world uh, and leaders across the world will do the same. You know, our sanctions really will only have effect uh, if other countries do the same. It's really sad that it's come to this. You know, Turkey uh, was an early NATO uh, member, and you typically do not sanction, you know, other NATO uh, allies. Uh, but I, I do think uh, we should keep on the table, uh, you know, considering whether that's something we want them to be a part of going forward. But again, you're not going to see that under this president. Hey, hey, Congress, could I turn the conversation to impeachment then? Because you know, we saw today now the fourth arrest of someone who's been associated with Rudy Giuliani. We keep hearing his name over and over from the readouts of these depositions. We've learned that he was leaning on President Trump a, a year ago to extradite a, a Turkish national uh, to appease President Erdogan. So so far, you guys have really been concentrated on this Ukraine call, on what the president's been doing in regard to Ukraine. But for the American people who think the president's got a lot more to answer to than that, would you consider sort of expanding what this impeachment probe is looking at? Well, the president certainly has priors in the sense that, you know, whether it was inviting the Russians to hack in 2016, obstructing the Mueller investigation, cashing in on access to the Oval Office, learning more about uh, you know, what was going on with Giuliani, and seeking to allow extradition uh, of a Turkish U.S. resident. Uh, sure, there are priors, but we are singularly focused on uh, this Ukraine extortion scheme uh, because there's the urgency of an upcoming election. And so you have crime, confession, and cover-up. And the American people understand all three of those. And the best way to protect an upcoming election and our national security, I think, is to say singularly focused on this incident right now. Well, then, with that in mind, then, what do you do if Rudy Giuliani says, I'm not going to appear, even if there's a subpoena, without a court order? Because court orders would take you well into 2020, right? If if that's the case, uh, we will file that away as a consciousness of guilt. We'll conclude that innocent people would appear. A guilty person with something to hide would not, and consider that as a potential obstruction of Congress uh, act uh, for the president. Rudy Giuliani is Donald Trump, and Donald Trump is Rudy Giuliani. So anytime... Rudy Giuliani is implicated in our investigation, we conclude that he is doing it as an agent of Donald Trump. He's Donald Trump's personal lawyer, and lawyers don't do things unless their clients authorize them to do that. And it's clear from what we've seen so far that that is what was going on. So, you know, in this case, with the confession from the president, it's in their interest to cooperate. We're giving them a chance to cooperate and respond to subpoenas. But if they don't want to show up and they don't have anything that could exonerate themselves, we're just going to conclude that that's the consciousness of guilt. So, Congressman, if, if, if you're that far along, even in the conclusions, and as you say, a confession of guilt, why aren't we now seeing public hearings or at least public release of transcripts of interviews as they come in? I know we don't even have a vote for an impeachment inquiry, but why not, if we're already that far along, open the doors up and, and let everyone see? 
we want to have a fair process first, you know, for the president, and he is entitled uh, to that. Uh, we're taking a first pass uh, at the timeline and the number of people involved in this shakedown scheme and to make sure that people who are implicated are not sharing their stories or tailoring their testimony because they've heard from other public witness testimony, we're keeping a close hold for now. That's not to say there won't be public hearings in the future, but any investigation like this, you do keep a close hold. And if you were to look back at uh, Watergate or even the Clinton impeachment trial, they had the benefit of a special prosecutor who conducted their investigation first in secret, and then the Congress received the information and had public hearings. There's no special prosecutor here. We essentially are doing that investigation, and then, of course, uh, the public will be read in very soon. Hey, uh, Congressman Swalwell, I, I was interested in, uh, if, you want, if we want to turn away from impeachment for a second, I was watching the debate last night. I know Rick was there at the debate venue, and I, we couldn't help but think of you and what you would think of all this, right? Because you know what it's like to be up there on that stage, on, the, on a very crowded stage at this point. You made a lot of headlines when you were saying, you know, we need this uh, a younger brand of leadership. Now that you're sort of on the outside looking in, it, it, was that still ringing true? Were you thinking uh, certain people are doing way better or way worse when, when, when you're watching these debates? Well, it, it was exciting to watch it uh, last night, a little refreshing to watch it, you know, from the couch and, and not on the stage. Uh, you know, I was a little less nervous. Uh, but, you know, I really enjoyed uh, the conversation around uh, assault weapons and a mandatory buyback. Of course, you know, I ran on that issue. We were the first candidate uh, to call for that and to see Beto O'Rourke really lean in and say that, you know, if, if we really want to do something about these mass shootings, we can't leave 15 million in our community. And then to see other candidates engage with him on that, that was fulfilling. That was fulfilling for all the families I worked with uh, who cared about that issue and to see that it got a significant part of the debate last night and that it lives on and it's now in the national conversation uh, gives me hope that we can do something on gun violence. We remember, Congressman, you, you quoting a, a younger Joe Biden and talking about the need to pass the torch on. And, and, and indeed, the way this, this, this race has developed, we now have three candidates in their 70s who are the front runners. They're the ones who are winning this race. They were all asked about their age. Bernie Sanders had a health scare and a heart attack just two weeks ago. Do you, do you share that concern now? Do you think there's such a thing as being too old to run for president? Do you think that those three candidates in particular have answered questions sufficiently to your mind about their ability to serve? Yeah, and for me, it was never about age. It was really a mindset in, in just, you know, offering uh, something other than, you know, decades of service in Washington. And that's not to take away the service, you know, of Senators, uh, Senator Biden, uh, and uh, Vice President Biden and Senator Sanders. Uh, that service certainly uh, is valuable, and they would be great presidents. I just think that elections are generally about change, and uh, we win when we offer change candidates from Kennedy to Carter to Clinton to Obama. And so, you know, there are change candidates in this race who are, you know, uh, just as old as Senator, uh, you know, Biden and Sanders, or at least in that uh, era. So I, I think it's more mindset than age. I had one flyer for you, Congressman, because yep. just going back to impeachment with the debate, I thought it was interesting that all these candidates are being asked about what they think about impeachment going forward. But like if the House holds an impeachment vote, Right. Tulsi Gabbard is the only candidate that was on that stage that would actually get to vote. I mean, do you, I kind of find myself wondering sometimes why do we care what Julian Castro or Beto O'Rourke think about the impeachment procedure? Do you do you, do you want to get all these candidates on record right now and sort of get a unified front going forward? I don't think they should worry as much about what's going on in the House, and they should probably worry more about showing the country that they won't conduct themselves this way. And I, I think many of them, you know, did pivot uh, to that. That you know, they can't. They've got to be firmly. 
uh, you know, in their own campaigns and engaging with the American people and talking about the days after Trump and what that means for health care and the economy and gun violence. But I, I do think that because we are undergoing this inquiry, candidates will have to demonstrate that they are not going to be corrupt like this president, that they're not going to be cruel like this president, they're not, they're not going to be childish like this president. And any candidate that can demonstrate that, uh, that you know, showing that they're presidential, uh, I think will uh, help them. All right. Congressman Eric Swalwell, Democrat of California on the Intelligence and Judiciary Committees. We appreciate you being here on Powerhouse Politics. Thank you, sir. So, Brad, you heard it from a congressman who's going to be in the middle of this impeachment inquiry in a lot of different directions on the Intelligence Committee as well as the Judiciary Committee. Things are moving really fast. I feel like the questions of process that the Democrats are the Republicans are making become critical ones as they try to build public support. But they're just it seems like they are amassing a lot of evidence, even if they're they know where the conclusion is going to be. It does become a question of how the public processes it. I I thought the Congressman Spalwell clearly is saying, you know, we're going to get our ducks in a row behind closed doors. But you've got a lot of Republicans that are being asked in the hallways, like, what do you think about impeachment? What do you think about impeachment? Well, a lot of them are saying, I don't know, because they won't let me see what anyone is saying behind closed doors. These Republicans are saying there are legitimate questions about how much we're going to be able to see. And and are the things that Americans are hearing just kind of the, the, the greatest hits that are coming out of these closed door hearings? The issue is that uh, you've got Republicans in those hearings and no one's exactly coming to the president's defense. Right, Rick? Yeah, they're defending the process more than yeah. anything else. And it's easy to make that process argument. I, you know, Nancy Pelosi did a bit of a did a bit of a head fake this week. It looked for a couple hours at least uh, early earlier on on Tuesday that she was going to push forward with a vote to start an impeachment inquiry. We heard from our reporting based on uh, those in the room that there was some pushback from Democrats on that. So they still have that in their back pocket, the possibility of having that vote to authorize an inquiry. They also have the possibility of public hearings, of releasing a whole lot of information. It's a hard story to track already. And, and it is you know, one smart political operative made the point to me that the difference between this and basically any other story like it is that the biggest piece of evidence may have happened day one. Mm-hmm. It was the transcript. It In was, public. It was out there immediately. And it's hard to, to keep momentum going when you know that much immediately. Well, so I have a question for you, Rick, then. Like, does this is there any chance this happens before December 31st? You were asking other congressmen this a few weeks ago. Has, has that changed in your mind? Then? I still think they're feeling a real pressure on this. The other thing that people haven't really focused on is that if you're going to have an impeachment trial, you, you need to work around not just Senate schedules, but also Supreme Court schedules, mm. because the chief justice of the United States has to preside over it. So I feel all of that leads to the January-February range for when you'd want to have a trial. And look, I, Democrats that I've talked to have been clear on this. They they feel confident on the politics of this, but they also want it to be well clear of the agenda before next November. They don't want this to drag on uh, up through the summer and the fall, up through the, the the political conventions. They they want to see. They want to call out Republicans on it, have the votes cast. Yeah. But if the president's going to be on the ballot, they want to know that. If he's not, if they're able to muster that Republican support to remove him from office, they want to know that as well. And, and what I find so interesting in all this is you've got these big names, President Trump, Rudy Giuliani, John Bolton. We're still waiting to hear from him. But to me, it's really the lesser known names that most of us have never heard about that are painting this picture. These career people that appear to be going behind closed doors, painting this picture, saying, oh, yeah, I've worked in government for a long time. I've never, ever seen a president combine his personal wishes and American taxpayer funded resources like this president. And, and you got to imagine that if that continues to be the narrative 
over and over and over again, and you don't get these ambassadors who were selected by Trump coming in and defending him, that that is the narrative, regardless of how famous the names are, that is going to continue to, to linger. Yeah, this president who's just violating norms all over the place. All right, that does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. Uh, thank you to Brad Milkey of the Start Here podcast, which you have to go immediately subscribe to yes. and download. If you don't do it already, go do it. It just won a huge award, the Murrow Award, Brad. Congratulations Thanks, on buddy. that. It's a terrific podcast that you should immediately download. All right. Thank you to the whole team here, Avery Miller, Angie Yak, uh, our man behind the controls, Trevor Hastings. Uh, we will be back next time with another edition of Powerhouse Politics.